From the United Nations in Bonn, I am Leonie Beck. And I'm Monja Sovagia. And we are the hosts of Inside UN Bonn, your podcast about the people and stories behind the United Nations in Bonn. The United Nations system includes plenty of specialized agencies, funds and programs, such as the World Health Organization, the United Nations Volunteers Program and UNESCO. But did you know that the United Nations has its own university? The United Nations University is the academic and research arm of the UN and facilitates the UN's engagement with academic institutions and policymakers all around the world. Since 2010, the UN University has been authorized to grant degrees, offering several master's and doctoral programs. In Bonn, there are three entities that are part of the UN University. One of them is the United Nations University Institute for Environment and Human Security. Its mission is to carry out research on risks and adaptation related to global change, such as climate change. The Institute is also actively engaged in education. It offers a joint Master of Science program called the Geography of Environmental Risks and Human Security, together with the University of Bonn. Today we're talking to Dr. Jack O'Connor from Australia. Jack is a senior scientist at the Bonn-based United Nations University Institute for Environment and Human Security. He's an expert on ecosystem-based adaptation and sustainable development. And on top of that, he's a marine ecologist. Hi, Jack. Thank you so much for joining today's podcast episode. Hi, it's nice to be here. You're part of the so-called Environmental Vulnerability and Ecosystem Service section on the United Nations University Institute for Environment and Human Security. That is quite a title. <laughs> Could you explain to us what this section does? Sure. Yes, like you said, it's a it's a long section. But so at the UNUEHS, we focus a lot on risk, climate change, adaptation. And the team that you just mentioned, we can shorten to EVES, the EVES team. We look at environmental vulnerability and ecosystem services and how that plays into risk. And so it may not be so intuitive to a lot of people, but the condition of an environment or you know how an environment is doing actually has a big effect on the communities that interact with it and that includes how at risk they are to various natural hazards. So if you had to explain ecosystem services to a child how, how would you describe this? Well if I had to explain it to a child I would say ecosystem services are the things that nature does for us. Nature gives us a lot of things whether we're realizing it or not Nature cleans our air, it cleans our water, it can protect us from wind and waves, things like that. And you're an expert on ecosystem-based adaptation, and what does that mean in your day-to-day? -day? In my day-to-day, ecosystem-based adaptation is an approach whereby we try to work with nature to solve problems of adapting to climate change. So there are a lot of things that humans can do and build to try and protect us from the impacts of climate change. But nature can also provide a lot of these services. And the positive thing being that if we use nature to do that job, it can provide us not just with tasks that we are looking for a solution to, but also a lot of other nice benefits. And a couple of weeks ago, the United Nations University Institute for Environment and Human Security released the flagship report, Disaster Risks in an Interconnected World. The report highlights the interconnectivity of 10 disastrous event case studies. Can you tell us a bit more about the cases? Sure thing. So the 
I guess you could say the cool thing about this report is that we selected 10 disasters or 10 events that happened in the past year from around the world. And what we were looking to do was select different types of events, events that people would have heard of and connect to, to sort of draw in their interest and then use these different events to explain larger global issues and sort of bring the people in and then give them the information. And so for this first report, we have some cyclone events, flooding events, there's fires, but there are also some other things like species extinction, explosions in urban areas, things like that. So there's a lot of different ones to explore. And the aha moment that we're looking for is that these different events are actually interconnected in different ways. Yeah, as you said, they, they are connected, but how are they connected and why is it important to talk about the interconnectivity of disastrous events? That's a good question. That's the question, I guess. So the report goes into a few different ways that these events are interconnected. The most intuitive ways would be that one event causes another. So we have things like the Arctic heat wave that happened where the Arctic reached these record temperatures and that had an influence on the climate such that in the end, cold air from the North Pole escaped downwards and you have a big cold wave in a place that's never experienced things like this before, such as Texas, I would say. I mean, they, they've experienced cold waves before, but the magnitude of this spread of cold air was unprecedented. Mm-hmm. So you have one event directly connected to another. Another way in which events are connected is that they may happen at the same time in the same place. And when that happens... They really exacerbate the, the impacts that happen. So we call this within our team a compounding event or a cascading event. And an example from the report was Cyclone Amphan. This area receives a lot of cyclones and they are in a way used to them and they prepare for them. But this happened during the COVID-19 pandemic which was a sort of biological disaster. And the combination of the two made things so much worse. But the third way that we go into in the report of how events are connected is that they share the same causes. And so we investigated these events and dug down into what was behind them, what started them, and what were the causes that we could find at the root. And we were surprised to find that these events often shared many of the same root causes. So, for example, we highlight three in the report that were shared by the majority of the 10 events. And it's really important to know this because if we can address these root causes, then we can help manage a whole range of different types of disasters. Mm -hmm. You already briefly mentioned COVID-19. I think COVID-19 has really shown that we live in hyper-connected societies. The pandemic impacted people and economies all around the world. And this interconnectivity is very obvious for COVID-19. Can you tell us a bit more about the other threats I think the, the Arctic is a good place to start and climate change is obviously an, an easy example and how in the Arctic, the Arctic experiences a, a feedback process whereby the temperatures rise, ice melts, the temperature rises faster and you just get drastic increase in temperature. And these kind of interruptions to the climate cycle can cause problems far away from the Arctic. And so, for example, global warming, of which, you know, Arctic is a part of and is accelerating, also causes things like droughts in areas in the far away like South America. And one of our other events was the wildfires in the Amazon. 
what made these wildfires a bit different is that they're largely started by people. So people are igniting them because they want to burn the forest down and clear land. But they were really exacerbated by drought events, drying out the forest and making it more susceptible. And so in that way, climate change was not just limited to, for example, the Arctic, but the drying out of the rainforest also exacerbated these fires which have been raging uh, year after year for a while now. So the report identifies a set of root causes you already mentioned. And however, there are three most commonly identified root causes that these events have in common. They are first, human-induced greenhouse gas emissions, second, insufficient disaster risk management, and third, undervaluing environmental costs and decision-making. Can you explain why these root causes are so common? Yes, absolutely. We've talked a little bit about climate change. I guess it's intuitive that climate change, a global phenomenon that is linked to things like cyclones and sea level rise, you can sort of see how this would be linked to many natural hazards. Insufficient disaster risk reduction. The act of disaster risk reduction is when people are trying to anticipate and prepare for these kind of disasters to happen. But often this kind of governance, you need to make choices depending on how much resources you have and how you perceive the risk. And so a lot of the time the risk is underperceived. People think that they're perhaps not as at risk as they are or they would rather spend the money on something else or disaster risk is management is perhaps not as profitable as another choice. And in these kind of situations, when disaster strikes, the place is unprepared and we often see bad examples of this. We also want to emphasize that perhaps you are very well prepared for the disaster to come. But as climate change impacts continue to roll on, and what we're seeing is more extreme weather and more extreme weather events happening closer to each other, you may think you're well prepared based on what you've experienced so far, but you may still be underprepared for the novel event that is going to happen in the future. And that's where disaster risk reduction gets really tricky, trying to anticipate the events that haven't happened yet and that you can't expect. The third root cause you mentioned about undervaluing environmental costs. And I think that this message is, is getting stronger each year and also with climate change, the example of undervaluing the environmental cost of our CO2 emissions. This also plays out in other ways when you're cutting down rainforests to grow meat or when you're building a dam for hydroelectricity. If you're not fully aware or if you're not considering the environmental costs of that decision, like I said, your nature provides services. And if you're not familiar with how those services work and what, you're, what you stand to lose, then your actions may end up creating worse effects than you could be aware of. Yeah, you already mentioned disaster risk management. What do the findings of the report mean for the future? How will disaster risk management might change? Well, I think it's, it's, it's always important to acknowledge that there's been a lot of progress made. And so when we talk about how it's insufficient, that is not to say that there's not a lot of progress and good work being done. And I think, as we mentioned, there are these root causes behind the events. And part of the message of the report is that these are important to address. If your risk reduction is, for example, just looking at how to protect from floods, that's super important. But if you're not digging back enough to find out why these floods are happening in the first place and what's making them worse and what 
kind of societal structures and behaviors are contributing to that, then you're always going to be a little bit behind the eight ball. And so we want people to start considering the bigger picture in their disaster risk reduction strategies. What does this report in general imply for our future? Well, we do go into, so we, we go into these 10 events and we dig deep and investigate and talk about root causes. And then we talk a little bit about the future picture, where these things are going. If you take an interconnected view and you see that these events and disasters also share impacts, they're also connected by their impacts. Almost all of them involve people losing their livelihoods and jobs, of course, their lives, their health effects, their environmental impacts. And so these are all contributing to future risk. Like we said, it's, it's, it's all a big feedback loop and the interconnectivity of things is a real rabbit hole to go down. Mm. One of my colleagues said when we were talking about the messages of the report, everything is interconnected. And that's true but you sort of need to give more. So if we keep going the way we're going, risk is only going to increase. The impact of disasters is only going to increase, which is not a very happy message. And there are things like the recent IPCC report that are coming out that, you know, the voices are getting stronger and more concerned that this is a problem we need to do something. So we do also have a solutions section. We are still optimistic and as we talk about interconnectivity of disasters and how people may be connected to disasters and their causes, they're also connected to the solutions. And so if we plan our solutions also in a more interconnected way, maybe we can make better progress in the future. While talking of solutions, I hope that it is not too late to act. What can be done to prevent further disasters? Well, I think preventing further disasters is is tricky. <laughs> I, what I mean to say is that disasters are, are always going to happen. A world without cyclones and a world without fires seems a long way off. But when we talk about disasters, we talk about events that have these catastrophic loss of life and damage. I guess our hope is that we can reduce that impact. What What we want to do in the solutions section is try to paint a picture where we approach solutions in a way that are not going to cause further impacts in other ways. So like I said, the undervaluing environmental costs and decision-making, this applies to disaster risk as well. So you can think that you're taking a good decision to reduce risk, but if you're undervaluing the environmental cost, like I said, you can increase it in other areas. And so we do propose different frameworks that are largely related to ecosystem services and what we call nature-based solutions because these ones are a little new and more difficult to implement, but they have far fewer downsides and a lot more upsides, I would say. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about solutions that are quite broad, but what can each of us on an individual level do? So we do actually have a section on that, actions that reduce carbon footprint Uh, big ones, you know, make responsible choices, inform yourself. You could probably form a, a chain that starts with informing yourself. Know how much carbon is, is attached to your activities. Know more about where your food comes from, the sustainability of your choices. And then you can start to take actions based on that knowledge to reduce your impact. Mm -hmm. As we're talking about all of this, we're also kind of thinking of disasters that have happened this year. 
One of them quite literally hit close to home. The floodings in Aweiler and the surrounding towns, which happened just 30 kilometers from Bonn. As a researcher in the area of disaster risk management, what were you thinking when you saw the footage of that catastrophe? Yes, I, I mean, it was totally horrible for a first thing, but also for somebody that's been working in disaster risk, you, you're used to working in faraway places on the other side of the world. And when it happens in your backyard, it's shocking. But it also illustrates the point that you may think that you're prepared for a disaster and it turns out not to be the case and nowhere really is invulnerable. And so I think there are lots of actions to be taken in developing countries to boost their capacity, but I think it's also a good time to reflect perhaps in the more in the Western world and, and for example, in Germany, I'm sure there will be a lot of reflection. And I think it also touches a little bit on what we talked about with insufficient disaster risk reduction management, the perception of risk. I think when these things happen in places like this, nobody expects it. Nobody perceives that there would be a risk and we need to consider that and, and perhaps rethink how we perceive risk in, in our own backyard. The year is still going. We haven't finalised things for the next report, but this may very well feature and, and we'll do an investigation then. I mean, it's still ongoing and people are still feeling the effects. So we haven't sort of turned our attention there yet. Yeah, I was just thinking, I often travel to the US and so I've witnessed many hurricanes, but because they happen every year and repeatedly, everyone's prepared and they know exactly what to do. If this happened here, no one would know what to do. So yeah, it is a matter of preparedness. And no one would take the warning seriously, I think. Yes. Yeah. In terms of the US, yeah, I mean, they have hurricanes all the time. 2020 was a record-breaking season. They had the most costly season ever. This is an area where they're used to it. They plan for it, but you still get taken by surprise. And so, like I said, I can't imagine that we will prevent disasters, but I think there's still a lot of space for reducing their impact and being better prepared. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us, Jack. That was very interesting to hear about. And yeah, thanks again. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. The new report, Disaster Risks in an Interconnected World, was released on September 8th. If you would like to read the report, you can download it on www.interconnectedrisks.org. More information about the Institute can be found on the UNU EHS website, which is ehs.unu.edu. Thank you for listening to Inside UN Bonn. The music is by Tim Moore and the design and visualizations of the podcast were done by me, Monja Sauvager. Thank you to the German Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their generous financial support in making this podcast happen. We will be back soon with more human stories from the people behind UN Bonn. To find out more about UN Bonn's 25th anniversary and the stories behind UN Bonn, please visit www.unbonn.org. On Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, we are at UN Bonn. Please take the time to review us because it does make a difference. Until next time.